If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, as we read together the word of the Lord, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, and uh, if you don't, there's some, uh, some, I believe, hardback black ones over there on the table. You may take a second to go get one if you would like, or uh, everybody's probably got an app on their phone that has uh, the Bible on it. Uh, please turn with me, uh, if you haven't already done so, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be in, uh, primarily in verses 1 through 10, uh, but to begin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, uh, uh, well, to begin in verse 1. Uh, Paul, Paul starts off and he says, I must go on boasting. Now, if you were paying attention, you'll notice that Paul says, I must go on, right? And you might be thinking, Chad, why, why are we picking up here? Doesn't this mean that Paul started to boast already? Well, you're right. So uh, let's go grab some context. Okay. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul begins, and I'm going to read very quickly here. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed... Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Drop down to verse 12. And what I, what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those 
who would like to, who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. And then again, verse 18, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. So we see here uh, that at least in this section of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul is addressing some opposition. He calls this opposition super apostles. Super apostles. And it's probably due to their extravagant boasting uh, in order to gain the ear of the church in Corinth. Um, you see, what we can glean from the text is that uh, these, these people have impressed the church enough with their boasting to sway them towards some false teaching. And we see the same thing going on in the church today. How many gurus are there that have the secret sauce to reaching to, reaching to the insert people group here or how to grow your church how to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. How to have a fantastic spiritual experience. How many books do we see lining the shelves of Christian bookstores? Much like uh, us today, uh, this was unnerving to Paul. Here's this beloved church being swayed by these super apostles. And so Paul, being Paul, cannot leave the super apostles unchallenged. If he does, Corinth is deceived. So he gives an answer for the hope that is in him. He does so in the most Pauline way imaginable. And he does it by using their own format against them. They boasted, Paul can boast too. He continues in, in, in uh, chapter 11, and he boasts of his, uh, his heritage, his ethnic heritage, um, which gives him a lot of credence, and he goes into um, all of his sufferings for the sake of the gospel. And then we pick up in verse 1 again. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So Paul continues in what must have been a really painfully awkward experience for him. He reveals that he's a bit hesitant to boast. He says that there's nothing to gain from it. And so in this, Paul's taken to heart Isaiah 64 Verse 6, right? All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, or uh, the ESV says polluted garments. And what that means is that it means hypocritical boasting. Empty boasting in one's own strength is absolutely, utterly useless. Now, Paul moves the conversation very quickly into visions and revelations, uh, which seems to indicate that he's categorically moving through the same phases of boasting as these false teachers. He's essentially going toe-to-toe with them, pound for pound, punch for punch. 
And what he describes is something that is extraordinarily ecstatic. Starting in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So Paul's referring to himself in the third person here. Uh, multiple scholars agree that Paul is referring to himself. Uh, and uh, to, to, to boot, uh, he gives himself away further down in verse 7, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, he gives himself away as the recipient of surpassing revelations. Now, what this, again, hammers home for us is just how uncomfortable Paul is with a boastful biography of his life and how unimportant he deemed this experience to his ministry. This experience was so wild for Paul that he did not know whether he was caught up bodily which would draw allusions to uh, Enoch from uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, and Elijah from uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, or if it, w- if it was an out-of-body experience. But he does know that it did happen, and he had been to the third heaven or paradise. Now, there is debate about the term third heaven. But, but, even so, I lean on this being grounded in a biblical cosmology in which, according to uh, Pastor Kent Hughes and his commentary and my study, Bible Notes, the first heaven is the atmosphere. The clouds, the blue skies... The second heaven is the place of the stars, space. The third heaven is the abode of God. Now, whether or not that is the correct assessment, the commentaries that I read all concluded that Paul was referring to the presence of God, and I agree. I agree. Regardless of what it means that this is the third heaven... We know that this is the dwelling place of God, and that is what is most important. Let's not lose focus here, getting lost in the weeds. This is made further clear when he repeats himself and notes the third heaven as paradise. And when you look at the Greek word there, uh, paradiso, it's the same word for paradise that Jesus used in his interaction with the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23, verse 43. There is no other, this is no other place, this, this third heaven, this paradise, this is no other place but in the presence of the exalted Christ. How incredible, how incredible an experience this must have been for Paul. Now, okay, what did Paul see while he was there? That's, that's the question, right? What did Paul see while while he was there. See, Paul says that he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. And guys, look, if you look very closely at the Greek, 
and you consult multiple commentaries, you'll find that, and this is absolutely incredible, that Paul heard things that he can't talk about. Some of you guys were hooked. I got you. Isn't it funny that we often long for an explanation of inexplicable things? A good uh, modern example of this is an over-fascination, uh, over-the-top fascination with eschatology or when the second coming of Jesus is going to happen. There are things, biblical things, that we cannot know for certain, and yet we'll write entire libraries of books studying the most minute details to make an attempt to theorize them. One of my professors in seminary told us, um, told us young uh, and eager seminary students a cautionary tale of a former student of his. Of his. Um, this student, he, he became almost obsessed with the book of Ezekiel, which is a very strange book. I've never read it. I recommend. Uh, in fact, every elective this guy took, every elective, he was purposed to study the book of Ezekiel further. And I think he even wrote a dissertation on, on, on some particular, uh, some particular uh, prophecy in the book of Ezekiel. Um, now, when he graduated and he moved on to uh, pastor a church, he lasted about two years before he was no longer in ministry. He had alienated everyone in his congregation over his obsession with a single book of the Bible. Uh, There can be a danger to trying too hard to know the things that God does not want us to know. And I think we can trace that desire all the way back to our first parents, and it didn't really go so well for them. And so... When we're looking at this text, we, we, need to, we need to note that Paul quickly moves on. And so should we. Again, referring to himself in the third person, he says, On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. This is wild. Most people in our, in our day, right, if, the, if this would have happened to him, uh, to them, uh, most people would write a book about uh, an experience as ecstatic as this, right? Be five minutes in paradise, or uh, that, time, uh, that time I got caught up to the third heaven. You know, it'd get, it'd get a movie adaptation, it'd, it'd stream on Pure Flix, if that's even still around. It'd be on every mainstream Christian bookstore website, the small group material would literally say, I have no idea how I got there, but I did, but I can't tell you what I saw. 
Thankfully, (laughs) Paul does not do that. He sees no benefit to it. He would rather boast in his weaknesses. Even though what he's told us is true. Okay? Even though what he said is true, he really was caught up to third heaven, caught up to paradise. He really heard these things that are unutterable. Paul would rather the Corinthians see him for what he's done and not what he's said about his own accomplishments. David Garland is is helpful here in his commentary. He writes, What is important are not the transcendent moments when he has become spiritually airborne, but his obedience and the daily chore of preaching the gospel faithfully despite weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. This is in stark contrast to the super apostles that have deceived the church in Corinth. Most of them, uh, you know, would, would boast and use that spiritual experience as, as a, a launching pad for their ministry. It would, it, would, it would be the entire content of all that they taught. It would be all of their credentials. And they would use it all to sway people into, into deception. Instead, Paul pivots, right? He pivots right here. It's really interesting. He doesn't use this as a launching pad for his ministry to Corinth, though it is incredibly impressive. No, instead he says this in verse 7. Okay, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. And, and there's the first person where Paul's revealing to us that it was actually him. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. What is the result of the exceedingly great revelations given to Paul? A thorn in the flesh. It wasn't fame, or fortune, or health, or wealth. No, an affliction. An affliction. Why was it given to him? To keep him from being conceited or proud. He also calls it a messenger of Satan. And this should call our minds to the book of Job, where we get the curtain pulled back on what, what this really looks like, where Satan goes to God, and he's been going to and fro uh, around on the earth, and God's like, hey, how about my uh, servant Job? And Satan's so like, yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get him. He's going to curse your name. What does God do? 
He allows it. He permits Satan to go and afflict Job in various ways. And in so doing, is glorified by Job's response to these afflictions in the end. Right? He's glorified in this affliction. And so, like Job, right, this terrible thorn was given to him by God. Again, God permitted. God is sovereign over everything. And here, in his divine wisdom, he is determined that Paul needed this thorn. Again, I find David Garland helpful here, and he writes, A proud, arrogant Paul would have only hindered the gospel's advance. A humiliated, frail Paul, led as a captive in God's triumph, has accelerated the gospel's progress so that the fragrance of knowing God spreads everywhere. You see what what Satan meant for evil? God is used for His glory. Now, we don't really know what this thorn was. It could have been a physical ailment. Could have been a speech impediment. Could have been a mental illness like severe depression or anxiety. We just don't know. But what we do know is that it was extremely debilitating and very, very obvious to those around him. It was probably also humiliating to Paul. Indeed, it's, it's kind of insinuated by the text that this thorn was was the object of, of the chastisement of his, of his opposition here. But the fact that it's left up to debate of what this thorn actually is, is extremely helpful to us. Because no matter the thorn that any one of us might have, we can identify with Paul here. We can identify with Paul. And that's important here in a second. Okay? Kent Hughes writes on, on, on this. Uh, this, this, this. This thorn, okay, as, as this thorn as the uh, uh, proof of the surpassing revelations, right? This turned the argument of Paul's critics on its head. Because Paul's loathsome thorn, the very thing his critics loathed in him and saw as evidence that God was not with him, was actually proof of the transcending superiority of his experience when raptured into the presence of God. What a stunning rebuke to the super-apostles who worshipped health and well-being and who viewed affliction and weakness as the absence of God's blessing. Haven't we heard that today? You hear that all over the place, Right? Everywhere, these prosperity churches that, that, that preach this stuff, that, this health and wealth and prosperity, we hear it a lot more here in the West. Indeed, this, this, 
this notion of an affliction being a blessing from God and, and, and is so foreign to us today. As we live in a relatively comfortable life here. I mean, we're, we're able to publicly gather here and to hear God's word and to worship together and to sing praises. We're able to go and share our faith openly for now. And then in verse 8, Paul goes on, right? He says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Look, just because the thorn was from God does not mean that the Apostle Paul found it enjoyable. Christians don't have to like suffering in and of itself. Paul certainly didn't. Look at his prayer. He prayed three times for this malady to be removed. Three times. Three times is significant. And we know that this is an earnest prayer from Paul to have this this terrible affliction removed. And it also draws us to Jesus in Gethsemane. When he prayed three times for his father to remove this cup. You know, I, I don't know who said this to me first. So I've heard it by word of mouth. But someone once said that prayer is always answered. Always answered. It's just that sometimes the answer is no. In the case of Jesus, the cross was necessary for his glory and salvation. In the case of Paul, the thorn was necessary for the spread of the gospel. Guys, sometimes our afflictions are meant to point us or others to the gospel, terrible as they may be. The no that Paul received is here in, in verse 9. Let me read it real quick. So Paul, he's, he's pleaded three times. That his affliction should leave him. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The no the no that Paul received is perhaps the crescendo of the entire letter of 2 Corinthians. In response to his petitions, Christ comes back and says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Christian, Christians here, there are those of us who have endured deep, dark hardships, from miscarriages, to strained marriages, to the loss of loved ones, to cancer, to the loss of jobs, to strained relationships with our kids, our relatives, our neighbors, to insults and slander, 
to deep anxiety and dark, dark depression. To you, to me, Christ says through Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. The Greek word here um, for made perfect, that's one word. It's in the present tense. And, and, and that's significant. We, we're going to get a little nerdy here. That's significant. The present tense is significant because it means that this is not finished. This is an ongoing perfection. It is ongoing in us and through us for the purpose of manifesting God's grace and Christ's power to us and through us and on to others. We see this thread running through the entire letter of 2 Corinthians. In chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, uh, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that, in, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4-10, through 10, he goes on, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known. As dying, and behold, we live. As punished, and yet not killed. As sorrowful, and yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Paul says that he will boast all the more in his weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon him. This same verbiage here is used in Exodus as God pitched his tent with his people in the tabernacle. It's also the same language used in John chapter 1 of Jesus when the word became flesh and dwelt. Among us, the all-powerful, sovereign, creator, king of the universe that we have seen as we've gone through Colossians, rests with, dwells with, pitches his tent with his people in our weakness. 
not in our strength, in our weakness. So while Paul's opposition, and while, while false teachers today, and while the world today would lead us to imagine that God favors the famous, the powerful, the holier than thou, the celebrity pastor, that is not the case. No, God dwells with the downtrodden. The weak and the forgotten. This, this is how we can be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Paul concludes here in verse 10. He says, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For the sake of Christ, none of these afflictions, trials, sufferings, none of them hold any value in and of themselves apart from Christ. If, uh, if you're not a believer and you're here today, or you're listening online today, uh, whatever day that is, and, and, and you heard something that really speaks to you in this passage, my prayer is that you would repent of your sin, that you would believe in Jesus, place all of your faith and all of your trust in His death on the cross and His resurrection, that it is for you so that you may be reconciled to God. And it may be, it may be that someone in this church, and one of our precious Members, one of our precious saints in this church is going through or has gone through something similar to you or that a Christian in your life is going through uh, or has gone through some deep, dark trial. And let me, let me, let me say, let me welcome you, that any one of us would gladly come alongside you in your suffering. And so please feel free to pull anyone aside here and talk to them. Ask questions. You're listening online, find a Christian in your life, pull them aside, ask questions. Be vulnerable. This This is the power and weakness. It is not our own power. It is not by our own devices. It is not through any means that we employ. It is not on our own merit. It is not by any good thing that we may have accidentally done in the common grace of God. No. It is not our power. It is God's power. It is 
God's power. And it is ours, Christian, it is ours only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. What a, what a gift to the church the Apostle Paul has been. God, that, that someone so, so hesitant to boast of all the great things that he did um, and, and only to boast in his weakness, God, that you would, you would have that um, be his lasting legacy to make such an impression over the church throughout all generations up till now. God, thank you so much um, for the humility that you granted to Paul through the thorn in his flesh. Father, we rejoice with Paul now that his thorn is removed as he is dancing in heaven with you in paradise. And Father, we long to see that day where we can join him. We long to see these thorns in our flesh put to death. Father, while we are here on this earth, I just pray that God, by your grace, your grace in being sufficient for us, that we would recognize that it is sufficient for us, that we would dwell on it. God, that you would, you would empower us by your grace to use our sufferings, to use our afflictions as means by which to glorify you. That we would glorify you to one another as we suffer together as a church. That we would glorify you in coming alongside our neighbors in our communities to glorify you to preach the grace of your gospel, the glorious grace of the gospel of Christ. Father, that others would come to know you and that they would see that there's power in weakness and it is your power. And that all other power of, of our own doings, all of those things, God, that they are just worthless and useless and meaningless. God, is pray, pray that you would Pray that you will be glorified in us and through us. And thanks be to God that we are able to pray to you in the name of Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.